Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these, and the, and, uh, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The word of the Lord. Fables and folklore. Fables and folklore uh, are told and written about in cultures in order to reinforce cultures, traditions, social mores, and values. You see this in almost every fable and folklore told in a particular culture. So even take 1001 Arabian Nights, the story of a young virgin who saves herself by telling a story at the end of the wedding party that ends in the morning, the, the, the wedding party ends in the morning, but her story keeps going. And she says, well, I'll tell the rest of it tonight. And so that lasts 1,001 nights, and she cunningly saves herself. And if you look in ancient Persian culture, one of the things that's highly valued is slyness, craftiness, cunning. So here's a story that talks about a young woman who is able to outfox the king of the whole land. We have these same sorts of things in American folklore and fables. John Henry with his hammer, 
Paul Bunyan with his axe cutting down the trees all over the northern forests. Johnny Appleseed scattering seed to put up every orchard all across America. This idea of hard work being intrinsic to America and frontier spirit going out and conquering the land. Our folk tales and fables do this sort of thing. Parables, however, are the same sort of idea, but the way Jesus uses them is entirely different. You see, a parable in rabbinic culture would have been to reinforce the traditions and understandings of the Jewish rabbinic teachings. But when Jesus came along, the the parables that he used, although they used metaphor and story that were common to everyone in that day and age, his specifically challenged the status quo. And the idea was this, that rather than a parable being something that was told about someone else, the idea was that you, as the listener, were meant to write yourself into the parable. Jesus is inviting his audience always into the parables, into the message themselves. And what he wants is for you to enter and respond. And he has a purpose behind it. You see, it's not just to enforce the status quo. His purpose is to reveal himself and to tell about his kingdom. In other words, there's two things that are always at play in all of the parables of Jesus. It is, what does this tell me about Jesus? And what does this reveal about his message? And he wants you to hear and respond. We actually see this at the at the beginning and end of the the initial parable that Jesus teaches, he says in verse 3 and again in verse 9, he uses the words, listen, and then at the end, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Basically, as he's telling this parable, he's saying, I want you guys to pay attention. Listen to this. Now, that's not just, do you hear the words? He wants you to respond. He's saying to the people that are listening to him that day, you need to heed this, accept this. Respond to what I'm about to tell you about me and the kingdom that I'm bringing. And I want you to be transformed. And so we're going to basically use Jesus' parameters to ask questions about this parable, the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. And it's basically this. What does this parable reveal about Jesus and his message? And what I'd like to do is look specifically at the seed You see, I've heard sermons on this before, and the way I tend to think about it is in relation to the soil. There's four types of soil, the path, the rocky, the thorny, and the good soil. And I think the the reason I don't want to go into that in depth today is because actually Jesus explains that himself. When the disciples are with him, he gives the sermon explaining the whole parable in relation to the soil. What I'd like to think instead about is what does this passage tell us about the seed? Because the seed, as he describes it, is his word or his message. And another way to put this, as several commentators allude to, is that it's the gospel. And when we talk about the word gospel in this church, we mean the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That God has come in Jesus to die for us. It's the message of God as Savior and Lord in the person of Jesus, crucified and risen. And it fits in with some of our vision and values as a church. We talk about being a gospel-driven church. And that idea of being gospel-driven is that we want the good news of Jesus Christ to define our identity and our worldview. 
We want to learn more and more to apply the grace, which is the fundamental starting point of the gospel, that we are saved by the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ so that we then hopefully begin to grow in our hunger and desire for God, walking in the spirit, increasing in humility. We want to be gospel-driven people. And so we're gonna look at the passage today and see if it maybe pushes us in that direction a little bit. And the basic question is this. What does this parable tell us about the nature of the gospel, using the seed metaphor, and how are we to respond to it? So what I see, one of the first things that I see here is that seeds give life. Yes, seed fundamentally gives life. The sower goes out to sow, right? That means a farmer goes out to plant seeds. Now, there's something fundamentally different about a seed than, say, a baseball. No matter how hard I try, if I take this baseball and I dig and then I put it down in there and cover it with good soil and even fertilize it and make sure to water it every day and it's sunny when it's supposed to be sunny, it's still gonna be a baseball underground. It's not gonna grow. You could even take something that's actually building material, like a brick. And let's say you take a brick and set it down and wait for the water to rain upon it in the sun, it's not gonna grow. Now you could take bricks and build something, but it's not alive. Fundamentally, the baseball, the brick, has no life in it. The seed, in Jesus' metaphor, has life in it. And this is actually how we would talk about the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion and the gospel. And the idea of thinking of Christianity as a religion, it's the idea of, well, I need to learn about Christianity like learning algebra. Or something that I need to practice to get better at, like, playing the piano. It's rules to be learned, sayings to be mastered. And in that way, it's thinking about Christianity like bricks and two-by-fours. You need to build a good building. And if you're trying to understand Christianity and live it out on the basis of religion, you might be able to build a better life. You might get better at doing some of these things that you weren't as good at before, being a little more generous because you're supposed to avoiding some of those things like your tongue getting angry at people. Religion can build that, but it's an external building, and it doesn't have life in it. You see, the gospel is good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, and it actually gives birth. It's a seed planted into the heart of a person that begins to grow. And think about the, the sheer power of even a single acorn a single brick can be the starting point of building a house, but a single acorn, over the course of time, can become a tree that can then become an entire forest. A single acorn has the power inside of it to populate the entire earth with trees. There's something fundamentally more powerful in this, and I think Jesus wants us to hear that, that there is the difference between life and growth eternally in the gospel that is far more powerful than the edifice we can build on religion. The difference between religion and the gospel, the life-giving power of the gospel, is the difference between meh and aha. Meh is the new two hoots. I'm going to explain two hoots to you. Teenagers are often obnoxious, and as a teenager, I was obnoxious. 
And we had this thing going around as obnoxious teenagers that we had learned from older teenagers, which was this. It was to use two hoots, which meant you held up two fingers. It wasn't a peace sign. It was to hold up two fingers saying two hoots whenever somebody was talking to you and you were bored. So it would end up like this. You would end up in a circle of friends, and you would start telling the story about what happened in your basketball game the other day, and all of a sudden, every guy in the room would be standing there like this, saying, eh, I don't care. It was a way of being rude to one another. Teenage boys are good at it. But we can also do the same sort of thing that the modern version of it is the meh. It's the kind of, eh, who cares? You could put it on the end of your Facebook or Twitter, Instagram post, meh. And we could actually have that response to Christianity. But my take is this. If that's your response to Christianity, if you go to youth group and you're like, meh, if you come in here and you're like, please wow me, meh, it's most likely that you have actually not experienced the life-giving seed birth of the gospel. You've actually been walking in religion. Years of going to church. You've heard the message. It sounds like a path that some people choose to be on. You know, some people choose to build their house with bricks. Others like stones. Some people like Christianity. Others choose other things. Eh, it's got a bunch of rules. It's religion. Meh. But when you finally hear the gospel, when the good news of Jesus Christ finally comes, when you realize that you were a sinner in need of saving and God offers that to you free of charge through his son crucified and risen, when you finally hear and the roots of the gospel begin to dig into your heart, you come alive. It's, uh, it's no longer popular to say the word born again, but it's actually in the Bible. That through Jesus Christ, we are born again. If you have not experienced that new birth, that aha moment of Jesus Christ being planted in you, then every time you come into a church building, read a book, talk to a Christian, you're going to say, meh, because it seems like religion. But I'm telling you, there's something fundamentally different here that Jesus is trying to offer. He's trying to offer himself and the good news of a transformed life in him. And when that finally takes root, when that finally hits your ears in a way that transforms and goes deep into your heart, the very center of you, meh becomes aha. The stories in the Bible that you've read become your story. You become hungry for God in a way that causes you to desire more and more of him. And all of a sudden you start seeing God and his purposes everywhere. What used to be an obligation, checking the box to say, oh, I, I went to church this month, becomes what you want to do. You hunger and desire for God. If you haven't experienced that, you probably have only tasted religion and not the gospel. Religion deadens, it bores, it ultimately enslaves. The gospel is the seed of life. And if all you know is religion, then it's like that seed that was planted on rocky soil. It sprang up but had no root. And when suffering comes, there's nothing, no way to be ready for it. Listen to what Jesus says explaining the one seed that falls on rocky soil. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
if being a Christian is for you a religious task, and then it's like being into religion in the same way that some people are into golf or into historic fiction. It's a choice that some people make. It's almost like it's a hobby or a compartment in your life, something you do on Sundays, one room in your house. If religion and Christianity fit into that category of self-improvement and something you do and are building in your life, then when trouble or suffering come, it will have nothing to say. In fact, I would say that if your Christianity is simply religion, that when trouble and suffering come, it will cause you to hate God or to hate yourself. Because either God's to blame for why this is happening to me or I am because of something I've done wrong. But when your faith is rooted and alive in the gospel, you realize two things. You're more sinful than you're willing to admit and more loved in Jesus Christ than you can dare to imagine. And this creates a whole new paradigm for understanding yourself and the world around you you actually can have assurance in the midst of trouble and suffering. You see, the gospel makes sense of the suffering and trouble that we deal with because it, we realize we live in a sinful and fallen world. Bad things happen. There is cancer. There is death. There is loss. It's a broken world. It makes sense of it. But also, when we have gospel faith, we develop a relationship with Jesus Christ, which means we can come to God. You know that when you're, when you're dealing with trouble and suffering and things you don't understand, if you have gospel faith, you realize you can go to God and be angry at him. David was angry at God for things that were happening to him. But in his anger, he didn't turn from God. He actually went to God and said, God, why are these things happening? It was a relationship like with a spouse or a best friend. Even in your anger, you go to him and you cling to him because you know he's the only one you can count on. You may not understand everything that ever happens in life. When gospel faith has begun to take root in you, you want to go to him, even if it is without understanding and with anger, rather than turning away from him. And ultimately, when you have that gospel seed growing in you, you have hope, the assurance that God loves you and is with you no matter what happens. And that there is an eternity that puts perspective on everything that we deal with in this life. To face trials and suffering, we need life, gospel life, not religion. And to really be able to endure it, it requires roots. So the first thing is the seed, the gospel gives life, it has life in it, and we need that life being grown in us. And secondly, we need to have roots planted deep. Look at what Jesus says in describing the seed that grew up around thorns. Verses 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So what's interesting here is that the seed actually starts to grow in this person. The gospel actually takes, takes root a little bit. But so do the thorns. Faith and the cares of the world. Faith and riches. Faith and desire for other things have equal root. 
They're both competing for the heart of the person. The roots of the gospel in this case don't go deeper than the roots of the thorns. And Jesus points out the thorns are representative of the cares of the world, the desire for wealth, or the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And it's interesting that word desire is one that we've hit on here before. It's a Greek word that talks about over-desires, super-desires, desires, lusts, longings beyond what is natural and normal. And it's actually the most common way to talk about our sinful desires. It's to say something that becomes most important in our life. A main pursuit. Another God. The desires of our heart compete for allegiance. And so in this case, the person says, oh, I love God in Jesus Christ, but I also love and the question that we need to be asking ourselves, whether we believe this gospel truth or not, is what has deepest root in you? What do you want most in life? What do you care about most? What can't you live without? What, if taken from you, would absolutely crush you? Is there anything in life you long for, must have, and desire more than God? And is that your true God? You know, my experience is that this is the main question that even Christians need to be asking in that process of growing in discipleship. And we'll find, you'll find that through the course of your life, you feel like you've kind of pushed off one set of thorns and the next begins to take root. And so I'm constantly asking the question, what do I desire more than you, God? Because on any given day or any given moment, there's things competing for the allegiance of my heart. And ultimately, if I'm going to endure trials and suffering and tribulation, if I'm going to be fruitful, I need to have roots in Christ deeper, roots in the gospel deeper. The gospel needs to be rooted deeper in me than anything else. And that's why we talk about in our vision and values, appropriating God's grace, having our identity shaped by the gospel, increasing in humility. You know, if I were to go out and do a survey with most of you about what you want most in sermons, in teachings, what most people would say is practical Christianity. What does Christianity have to do or say about parenting or dating or work? And in some ways, I get it. Many of us want sort of a manual, a manual for being a Christian boss or the 10 rules of Christianity for dating and finding a spouse. But if what Jesus is talking about here as the seed of the gospel being grown in us and taking root in us are true, then it's not rules we need. It's not a manual. We need the gospel to take root deeper in us to grab hold of our heart and our mind and our will and every part of us, to drill down to the very core of, of us and center of us and out of that, out of that heart and mind and life that is fixed on Jesus Christ will grow the spirit-transformed life, a new way of understanding, a new way of seeing the world around us. When God, what God has done in Jesus Christ really takes hold of you, it begins to change all of your views, 
your view of yourself, your identity, your worth, where you get your worth from, your view of others as competition or commodities versus somebody to love and serve, the world around you and how you understand it, the priorities and desires of your life. From them, from that place of the gospel, we realize that we are so sinful that it humbles us, but loved and forgiven so that we have confidence. When we begin to walk in grace, and not in our accomplishments or other things. When the gospel gets rooted deeper and deeper, it actually has a lot of practical implications in our life. So rather than a manual for how to date Christianly, when you date, you treat the other person as Christ would. You don't desire to use them or manipulate them to get some end, but it's an opportunity to get to know and serve them. And if you break up, you aren't crushed because you've actually met the true love of your life. You know, when the gospel roots deep in us and it begins to birth in us this new way of thinking, new way of being, it enables you to deal with challenge and loss out of a place of grace and wisdom. Much of my life, if I look back on it, is a series of not doing that right, looking for the right answer when tough times come. I'm looking back, though, on my life a few minutes ago or earlier today and thinking about two times when actually the gospel birthed the right response in me. One was almost 20 years ago. Sarah and I were engaged, and we were engaged for a few months, and she was getting cold feet. And um, I, I wasn't crushed by it. In fact, for some reason, what came out of me was, well, give me the ring back. And it wasn't a meanness. It was I had paid for it, and it was expensive for me as a college student. And, and I said, because in my head, I thought, I know that I am loved in Jesus Christ. And if she doesn't want to marry me, that's okay. God will take care of me. God loves me. That's where my identity is found, not in her. I don't know that I could do the same now. But at that moment, what was coming out of me, out of a gospel-driven heart, out of a heart rooted in what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, was an identity that was fixed. It was also a good tactic. She decided that was a one she liked, and hey, let's not give this ring back, let's get married. <laughs> but I didn't do it to manipulate. I did it out of a place of confidence in Christ, which I don't always have. Another time was a few years ago, and many of you know this, but in the first year of this church being, being birthed, being planted, I was submitting and defending a PhD thesis in England. My PhD failed. My thesis failed. By the way, that never happens. It's like one in a thousand people fail their PhD. I was that one in a thousand. And while it was disappointing and frustrating because of the time and the money, my identity was not bound up in having that next to my name. I had felt called to do that at that time. We stepped into that process. It didn't work out. God is good and I can trust him because I've seen what he's done in my life. I didn't have a manual for responding. I didn't have the 10 steps to respond to loss and failure. I had the gospel. I clung to that. Look, those are pretty simple challenges. I know many of you are facing much deeper loss and challenge. Things that are much harder in your life. Go to the gospel. 
Find yourself rooted deeper and deeper. Let it dig down into you. What God has done in Jesus Christ, who he is, who you now can be in Christ, forgiven, accepted by grace in his love. Find your identity, your purpose, your direction in him. And you will be able to withstand the challenges and suffering that we're all going to endure in this life. But you've got to go deeper. You've got to let the good news of Jesus Christ have a deeper root than all other possible allegiances. The gospel gives life. The gospel requires roots. And the gospel, the seed of the gospel, falls everywhere. The sower in this story is excessive. He takes the seed and scatters it everywhere. Now, aside from farming technique in the ancient world, what we see is that the sower, Jesus, is liberal and generous with this good news. It falls on rocky ground and paths and thorny ground and good soil. He throws the gospel himself everywhere. And you see this in Jesus' life. If you read through the rest of Mark and you watch what Jesus does and who he interacts with, he interacts with both insiders and outsiders. He reacts with those who respond to him and those who reject him. He gives himself to rabbis and the powerful and the rich. He gives himself to the average people like Peter and James and John. And he even gives himself to the most rocky, thorny people out there. The people that nobody in their culture would have said, give yourself to. He gives himself to Levi. We, we could have read this a chapter earlier. Levi was a tax collector, the sort of person that was hated in that culture. Jesus gives himself to prostitutes saying, this is the good news that you need. He brings his good news to Samaritans, a hated half-breed class in that day and age. And think about this, the amazing thing about this. He even gives himself in his message to Judas. He throws his seed upon everyone. The most religious and the most profane. The most connected and the most outcast. The most knowledgeable and the most possessed. This reveals the heart of God for us. God is lavish and generous with his love and grace. Don't forget this. If you're a Christian wrestling with your faith, if you're not quite sure if you believe, don't ever think of yourself as too rocky or too thorny. He throws his seed upon you. He says, here am I, crucified for you. The only difference, the only difference between the fruitful soil and the unfruitful soil, between insiders and outsiders when it comes to the gospel, between growing seed and dead seed, is hearing. Hear the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior and God. Let it take root deeply, penetrate your heart, and grow and change you. What's interesting, when Jesus is describing, explaining the passage in verses 15 to 19, he uses the word here as a, as a command four times. These are those who hear. These are they who hear. 
They hear the word. They hear the word. The first three instances are the fails. And in each of those, the Greek that's used is punctiliar, meaning it happens at one point in time. The last time, it's continuous. The first three times, the person hears the message, okay, Jesus died for my sins. But the last, we're in the continual process of hearing. It's an ongoing, life-changing, life-enduring process of hearing and letting it continue to change me. Hearing and heeding and chewing on the gospel, digging in deeper, fertilizing it, watering it, letting the roots go down further and further, allowing it to shape my identity and my worldview, clinging to grace when I feel guilty, clinging to God's love when I feel outcast, clinging to God's eternity when life seems so short. It's a continuous hearing that is rooted and growing and it will yield 30, 60, 100 throughout our life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you came to suffer and die for us. It is the mercy of God for us and the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. I pray, God, that this morning that you would help to awaken us, that you would move our meh to aha, that you would plant the good news of Jesus Christ deeper in our heart, rooting out other allegiances, that you would help us to hear continually see and grasp what you have done for us in this good news, this gospel. Amen. Mercy I found